And it is very important that you all get this right. Fair, consistent, transparent. Mr. Emmert, you say that is your priorities, but I have to tell you, I was really disappointed with our meeting last week. And I think we're looking at a time when the NCAA has failed when it comes to women in sports, uh, sexual harassment, uh, sexual assault, sexual abuse that has occurred. And I, I think a question that must be going through a lot of minds of student athletes and their parents is how in the world are they going to be able to trust you to get this right? Because I think most of these universities would be embarrassed if they were publicly called out that they were unwilling to give a four-year scholarship to an athlete. So why did it take a request from Congress for this roll call for this to ever reach the light of day? And I would ask for this list to be made part of the public record. I, I, I think that my sense, and I have a lot of questions about transparency of money and about whether or not things are made public, I, I feel for you because in part of me thinks you're captured by those that you're supposed to regulate, but then you're supposed to regulate those that you're captured by. And I can't tell whether you're in charge or whether you're a minion to them. You know, I, I don't sense that you feel like you have any control of the situation. And if you have no control, if you're merely a monetary pass-through, why should you even exist? So my question to you is simply this. Do you think it is time to call your leadership of the organization into question? Do you think you are still capable and fit to lead this organization to make a decision that is going to be fair to the student athletes and their parents? Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog you can check out. I, I haven't really posted anything on that since the Austin oral argument in March of 2021. But there's some stuff there that you might find interesting. And you can find that at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email, and my email address is rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is April 27th, 2022, and just when I thought it was safe to stay on task discussing this California revenue sharing Bill, we get a breaking news story that I think I have to talk about, and that is that NCAA President Mark Emmert announced that he will resign on or before June of 2023. And that is important, obviously. And I'm going to talk about why I think it's important. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Emmert's tenure and then the role of the NCAA president and how that is going to be important, at least symbolically going forward. And I'm going to speculate a little bit on not necessarily exactly who should be the next NCAA president, but what I think the Power Five want in an NCAA president. And this is a Power Five show. It always has been. And that's one of the problems in the business model that dates back to Board of Regents. And uh, we'll, we'll get into all that. But I just briefly want to give a little bit of an update 
update on this California bill because yesterday that bill was debated in the California Senate in the Judiciary Committee. So as I discussed in the last episode, it cleared the Education Committee by a four to zero to three, which means four yeses, zero noes, and three abstentions. I viewed those three abstentions as um, noes, essentially. But this went to the Judiciary Committee and it sailed through the Judiciary Committee, and I believe the vote was nine to one in favor. So I'm going to be talking about that bill again, and I'm going to incorporate what happened at this Judiciary Committee meeting. And I want to talk about the bill on a values level. That's where I left things in the last episode. And honestly, I was surprised at the vote. I thought there might have been a little more pushback. And I misstated the the procedure for this bill in the last episode. I said that if it cleared Judiciary, it was going to go to the full Senate floor for a vote. That's not correct. The bill now has to go through appropriations. And I think that is where you could see a potential snag and a more detailed discussion about the math, about the accounting, about how this bill would go about calculating revenues for the purposes of the revenue sharing component of the bill. And so we'll talk all about that and I'll be keeping an eye on what happens in appropriations. But I have to talk about this uh, bombshell news story. And actually, it's not that bombshell. I think people who have been paying close attention have realized that the in-system stakeholder decision makers, the, the power players, and that's really the power five right now, they're in the driver's seat. They got everything they wanted through this constitutional makeover. They're in control of their own destiny under the NCAA umbrella. And Emmert has just become a liability. And uh, in particular, he's a liability with the, the grand prize that the power five want right now, and that's protective federal legislation. And they have not backed away from that, and they are going to go, be going full steam ahead. And that, I think, is going to influence, in large part, the decision of who is the next NCAA president. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. So I want to first talk about the form of Mark Emmert's departure, because he has announced his resignation. He was not fired, and that's very important. And it's also important to remember, I've talked about this in prior episodes, but I think a lot of people don't understand that the NCAA president is not elected by the membership. He is hired by the NCAA Board of Governors, its only association-wide board, and the NCAA president reports to the Board of Governors and only the Board of Governors. It is a very cozy relationship, and that's been one of the problems in the governance model. You have this star chamber-like relationship between the NCAA Board of Governors and the NCAA president, and there really isn't any accountability outside of that relationship. And the NCAA president serves at the pleasure of the NCAA Board of Governors, and they and they alone have the authority to fire the NCAA president. And I think this is a form of dismissal by the Board of Governors that doesn't come with the baggage of outright firing Mark Emmert. And I think that's very important. And I think the timing of uh, his remaining tenure is important as well, because it gives the NCAA a little bit of breathing room to bring in the ideal candidate. And it reduces the anxiety that would have resulted if the Board of Governors 
governors had outright fired Mark Emmert. That would be a firestorm of, of uncertainty, and I, I think it could project to the appearance of instability, even more instability than actually exists right now. So they want this to be an orderly transition, and I think that an, an outright dismissal would have uh, plagued the Power Five as they're moving into the next phase with this transformation committee and then their re-engagement with Congress, which is where this is all headed. So it was an interesting announcement. And the release, the press release on the NCAA website was very pro forma. It was very brief and it was very businesslike. It wasn't presented in the way that you would see this kind of announcement if Emmert was just at the end of his professional career and you had all these uh, feel-good narratives and retrospective and all the wonderful things that Emmert has done as NCAA president. And, and remember, Emmert's contract was set to go through 2025, and his original contract uh, prior to April of 2021 was going to expire in 2023 anyway. And then in that April 2021 Board of Governors meeting, the board made this very low-key but really important announcement that they extended Emmert's contract into 2025. And that had a lot of people in the system, particularly athletics directors, conference commissioners in the Power Five saying, what the hell's going on here? And I had that same question. And I've talked quite a bit about Emmert's leadership and in particular, his, his future after the summer of 2021 and the self-inflicted wounds that really brought the NCAA to a place where it was in a battle for its very relevance. And in my judgment, that was due in large part to Mark Emmert's leadership style, or as I've called it, anti-leadership style. But you know, after the nil debacle and Mark Emmert coming out with this interim policy and dumping all the NCAA's nil garbage at the feet of the institution, Mark Emmert went on a personal charm offensive, and he was trying to portray himself as the savior of college sports and that this nil decision was transformative, and, and he was the one who should receive credit for it. And, and he did claim credit for it, classic Emmert fashion. And I, I did a, a couple of episodes on that, that period and talked about Emmert's role in that uh, summer of 2021. And Episode 40, titled The NCAA's Ministry of Truth Strikes Again, Mark Emmert Flushes 70 Years of NCAA History Down the Memory Hall. And in that episode, I, I talked about this interview that Emmert gave with a quote-unquote small group of reporters on July 15th, 2021. And after two and a half years of aggressive politicking the Senate to have the NCAA's authorities as the sole national regulator in college sports protected by federal protections and immunities, Mark Emmert, on the backside of a failure of that campaign, says, oh, now we need to decentralize. We need to send these authorities back. Back to the people who own them, the divisions, the conferences, and the individual institutions. It was just a stunning hypocrisy. But it was Mark Emmert trying to reposition himself, and he's so good at doing that. And look, to be a successful university president, he's a former university president. He was at LSU, the University of Washington, and he was one of the highest paid university presidents in America. But to play that game, you've got to be very good at the political side of this and working the institution 
traditional levers of power and uh, grooming your public perception. And that has been, I think, really one of Emmert's fatal flaws. This goes back to the very beginning of his tenure and then his chest pounding with the Penn State case and then the, the debacle with the Miami infractions and enforcement case and then his mishandling of the nil issue and the federal antitrust litigation and this decision to appeal Austin to the United States Supreme Court, which really came back to bite the NCAA in the butt. And a common theme that, that runs through all of that is Mark Emmert's ego. His ego was all over those those decisions, those bad decisions. And the NCAA Board of Governors simply didn't hold him accountable for those failures. They just pretended that nothing had happened. They moved on full steam ahead. And you have to also remember that the NCAA Board of Governors that hired Mark Emmert and has now, I think, asked him to resign is comprised overwhelmingly of university presidents and chancellors. And that goes back to the really what I see as the failure of the presidential leadership and control model that dates back to the Carnegie Report in 1929 and then was revived through the work of the Knight Commission in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. And then in that 1991 seminal report, Keeping Faith with the Student Athlete, the uh, entire governance model was built around presidential leadership and control. That has been a miserable failure. We've had former university presidents in the NCAA presidency in that captain's chair for 20 years now. Miles Brand came from Indiana University and, and he was NCAA president starting in 2003. And then he passed away in 2009. Then in 2010, the Board of Governors hired Mark Emmert, another university president, and the leadership of that organization under former university presidents has just been a train wreck. And rather than trying to bring the values of college sports in closer alignment with the values of higher education, they have pressed the gas on the overt commercialization and professionalization of college sports. And the values of higher education and big-time college sports are more misaligned now than ever. And as that misalignment has increased, over the years, particularly over the last uh, 20 years, you have seen the uh, university presidents, including Brand and Emmert, increasing the volume on their rhetoric about the need to align these two forces in higher education. But behind the scenes, they are just doing everything in their power to maximize revenue and to try to get squeeze every nickel they can out of the two revenue-producing sports, and that is in part a product of Miles Brand's collegiate model, which tried to offer a grand reconciliation of the, the tension between big-time college sports and the goals of higher education. And uh, the product of that grand reconciliation, at least at the financial level, was this mandate that universities maximize the revenue-generating capacity of the two big sports, football and men's basketball, and then take that money and send it to downstream participation opportunities, which I guess could be arguably consistent with the nonprofit mission of these institutions. That's how Brand articulated it. And the practical result of that is that you have this system that's based on a massive aggressive transfer of wealth from overwhelmingly black laborers in football and men's basketball in the Power Five down to overwhelmingly white beneficiaries. It's a terrible model. It's an immoral model. But that's the way that the leaders of college sports 
have tried to justify the business model. And I think that as the system, or at least the values-based justifications for the system, are beginning to collapse under the weight of their immorality and their injustice, you're seeing the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, rather than looking honestly at that business model and saying it's wrong and we need to change it, they are positioning themselves to go back to Congress for a federal bailout because all of these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries of the labor of the athletes in in big-time football and big-time men's basketball have grown quite accustomed to their seven-figure salaries. And they simply can't uh, bring themselves to place their values above their wallets. And that's not a, a personal criticism. That's human nature. And I think what you see is the worst elements of human nature playing out in this business model. And the irony is that this business model is based on values. It's based on amateurism and the student athlete, the scholar athlete, the the collegiate model and loyalty and fidelity to institutional values that try to make this enterprise look like an educational exercise, not a commercial exercise. And that's just impossible to sustain. It's untenable. And I think what's happening right now is proof of that. But as I'm going to discuss when I talk about what the next NCAA president needs to be able to do, I think you're just going to see more of the same. And it's going to be repackaged. It's going to, the, the face of the business model is going to be someone, I think, who is more palatable inside the beltway and has some political influence. And, you know, we'll talk more about that. But you have to remember that this same board of governors is going to be the board of governors that hires the new NCAA president. And in this constitutional makeover, the board of governors is going to be substantially reduced. It has 21 voting members now. 16 of those are university presidents or chancellors. That's going to be reduced down to nine. And I think at most there will be three university presidents and chancellors. So it's not clear whether the old board, the the 21-member board is going to make this decision or whether they're going to wait until they install the new board. That'll be an interesting procedural issue that we'll, we'll pay attention to. But one way or another, the same people who hired Mark Emmert and, and created this mess by allowing him to, to fly the NCAA plane into the side of the mountain are going to have to decide who the next NCAA president is. And that brings us right back to one of the fundamental problems in the governance model and the leadership model and the thinking about big-time college sports. And that is that the people who created this mess are still sitting in the chairs that have the responsibility to clean up the mess. And that is not a winning formula. So the other thing that I think it's important to talk about when we're talking about the NCAA president is that post-Board of Regents, the NCAA president has been nothing more than a puppet for Power Five football interests. In in that 1984 lawsuit, that Supreme Court decision, the NCAA lost control of its football empire. It used to have a complete monopoly over televised football for the regular season. The the postseason was still operating in in many ways outside of the NCAA's iron-fisted control. But 
The NCAA had absolute control over the televised football market for the most part. And when the NCAA lost that, the only source of revenue they had was the Division I men's basketball tournament. And I talked about that quite a bit, particularly around this uh, Final Four, which the NCAA just propagandized the ever-living hell out of, in part to make a case for its very relevance. But this dance between the Power Five football interests, the NCAA national office bureaucracy, and the March Madness money, is really the three-legged stool that has defined the business of big-time college sports. And the NCAA president has really just been a propagandist for Power Five football interests with very little control over what happens in that Power Five football market because they operate as a completely separate entity, technically under the NCAA umbrella, but for financial purposes and in their market activities, they operate as an entirely independent product and the NCAA doesn't have the authority to tell them what to do. And that has uh, really limited the power of the NCAA president. That's not an excuse for Mark Emmert's anti-leadership, but it's important to, to understand And in some ways, the NCAA president's adherence to the wishes of the Power Five football interest seems counterintuitive because you think, well, wait wait a minute, if the NCAA is not getting any big-time football money, why are they carrying the the bags of the Power Five football interest? And the reason for that is that if the Power Five football interest chose to leave the NCAA altogether, and those discussions have been renewed just in the last couple of weeks, you had Notre Dame Athletics Director Jack uh, Swarbrick saying there's going to be a, a further uh, subdivision out and maybe you have a complete separation. You know, th- that, that argument's been recycled since the 1970s, and every time the powerful football interests wanted to get their way, they would threaten to leave the NCAA altogether. They're doing the same thing here. But if the Power Five football products just left and formed their own association, a completely separate association, it is very likely that the basketball product, the big-time basketball product, Division I men's basketball, would go with it. And then the NCAA's gravy train, this March Madness uh, tournament contract with CBS Turner, which is worth a billion dollars a year and extends into 2032, that would be at risk. And if the Power Five basketball products left the NCAA, the March Madness tournament loses almost all of its value. And CBS and Turner are paying a billion dollars a year to televise the Division II men's basketball tournament or the Division Three men's basketball tournament because people aren't watching those products. They're not investing in those products. So that is really the glue that binds these stakeholders in this detente. I've described that relationship as a detente, and the NCAA national office bureaucracy is kept afloat with the March Madness money, and the Power Five football interests, I don't think, really care that much about what happens with that March Madness money because so much of it's uh, siphoned off to downstream beneficiaries who don't generate any revenue, like these block grants to Division Two and Division Three, and then uh, paying for all these national tournament expenses. The big-time powerful football interests don't pay a penny for that. And on the backside of all those expenses, what's left for distribution back to the schools who actually earn that money in March Madness 
is really a very small slice of the overall revenue pie in the business of big-time college sports. I don't think the Power 5 football interests give a damn about that. They've used that as a bargaining chip to get the NCAA national office to heal to whatever the Power 5 football interests want. And uh, Cedric Dempsey did that in the 1990s. I talked about that in connection with those hearings between the haves and have-nots in college football in the Senate in 1997. And I went through his some of his testimony. He was carrying the bags for the Power 5 football interests, so what would become the Power 5 football interests. And Mitch McConnell, a senator from Kentucky, really pinned him down on that. It's like, you know, what, what's in it for you? Why are you doing the bidding of the powerful football interests? And then Claire McCaskill in a hearing in 2014 asked the same question of Mark Emmert. It's like, are, are you a minion to these people? I can't tell who the hell's in charge here. And that is really, I think, the a central flaw in the overall business model that nobody talks about. And you don't, you never heard Cedric Dempsey or, or Miles Brand or Mark Emmert saying, look, we've been cut off at the knees here at the NCAA National Office, and these football interests own us, and we need them to preserve our March Madness gravy train. They're never going to say that. At least Brand, in a 2003 hearing in the Senate, came out and said that there were some limitations on the NCAA's authority with respect to football because of the Board of Regents case, but he didn't really elaborate on that. Mark Emmert hasn't touched that with a 10-foot pole, and neither did Cedric Dempsey. So you've had, what, nearly 30 years of NCAA presidents post-Board of Regents carrying the water for the powerful football interests. And I think that limitation really hasn't been on the table, but that is really the problem in this this unholy triangle between powerful football interest in their money and then the March Madness money and then the NCAA bureaucratic state's desire for self-preservation. And that's how I think the NCAA national office has approached its relationship to the football interests. And now the football interests are in absolute control after this constitutional makeover. And one of the questions that I asked on the backside of this constitution is, do we even need an NCAA president? What authority does the NCAA pres president have? Not much, even less than it did before. So th the way I view the NCAA president's role is, one, how effective are they in carrying the bags for the Power Five football interests? How good are they at doing that without having to disclose the, the true dilemma here, which is one of, of power and, and money? And, and the NCAA president and the NCAA national office are powerless when it comes to influencing the, the direction of the big-time college sports marketplace, which is dominated by Power 5 football. And then the other important thing, uh, this is very central to the NCAA's business model and the big-time powerful football interest as well, is how good is the NCAA president as a propagandist, both for uh, broader public relations purposes and uh, consumer demand issues and, and marketing the business of big-time college sports, but also now what is their reputation in Congress and in federal courts and how effective can the NCAA president be as a bagman for the Power Five football interests with powerful decision-makers that they now need 
need to preserve the the business model without being you know forced uh, to change and and being pulled into the 21st century and on all three of those counts i think emmert is failing and and his greatest failure and the most important failure now is the fact that he has very little credibility and he has just pissed people off in congress left and right and if you want to understand what a liability Mark Emmert is in in Congress and in the NCAA Power Five's campaign for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation and their attempt to eliminate the athletes' rights movement, you, you need to look no further than what Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn had to say at uh, some of the hearings that occurred in, in 2020 and 2021 as the NCAA was ramping up its uh, campaign in in the Senate. And Blackburn was not a fan of Mark Emmert. And he just came in with all his arrogance and his my way or the highway view of the world. And he really pissed off Marsha Blackburn. Marsha Blackburn, as a Republican from Tennessee, is the dream senator for the NCAA and Power Five in terms of getting uh, protective federal legislation. Marsha Blackburn should not only be a no-brainer in the NCAA Power Five column, but she could be a very effective advocate as a female Republican senator from an SEC state to try to help more moderate Democrat female senators to come over to the NCAA Power Five's view of the world. And I think that's really where the rubber's going to meet the road with the Power Five's re-engagement with Congress after the midterms. And they have been targeting female senators because so much of their propaganda is built around Title IX. And Mark Emmert has just undermined the power of a voice like Marsha Blackburn. And at that very first hearing on February 11th of 2020 in the uh, subcommittee of Senate Commerce that was run by Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, who has been a reliable NCAA bagman, and he put in a piece of legislation in February of 2021 that I've talked a lot about, which would kill the athletes' rights movement. And uh, I'll just note real quick that the clips that you heard at the opening montage came from Marsha Blackburn, and then also from Claire McCaskill, who was a Republican senator from Missouri. And that first clip was from Blackburn in that February 2020 hearing. And then we heard McCaskill from a hearing in 2014. And then that last clip was from Blackburn again at a 2021 hearing that I'm going to talk a little bit about. But at that first hearing, Blackburn just went after Emmert. And she was really upset about the NCAA's treatment of James Wiseman, a star recruit at the University of Memphis. And Wiseman just was run through the NCAA infractions and enforcement grist mill, and they ruined his college career. And he just left for the NBA. After his freshman year, Blackburn was livid about that. She thought Wiseman got screwed, and I think she's right about that. But she launched into Emmert at that hearing. He, apparently, he had gone around and uh, talked to some of the senators before the hearing, and that's not an uncommon thing to do. And you get to share some thoughts and maybe narrow the issues and maybe do a little politicking. But boy, he really rubbed Blackburn the wrong way, and she she just let loose. She she doesn't hold back, and I I love that about her. But she just uh, ripped him a new one and said, "Look, we can't trust you. You guys never do the right thing, and and here you are 
sitting before us. Why should we trust you now? That's essentially what she said. And then in the, I think it was June 9th of, June 7th or June 9th of 2021, when the NCAA came in literally on its knees begging for federal preemption to neutralize all these state laws that were set to go into effect on July 1st, Emmert was there as well, essentially demanding emergency preemption. And Blackburn lit into him again. And finally, she just came out and said, why are you still here? Why are you sitting behind that microphone? Why am I talking to you? It's time for a change of leadership. I think your leadership has been called into question. And maybe it's time for a change. And Mark Emmert's response was classic Mark Emmert. There, there was no sense of humility in the way he responded. He just came back and said, well, that's not my decision. That's a decision for the board of governors. And it just the way it came across to me, at least, was that he was defiant and, and he just expected to waltz into that hearing and get everything that he wanted at the last minute, in large part because of the incompetent way that he handled the whole name, image and likeness issue. And the NCAA didn't follow through on their promises, and he was playing all kinds of games to manage the clock, particularly with the voluntary rules changes, which he had promised in January of 2018. 21. And when it didn't look like things were going the way that the NCAA had hoped in Congress, and then they had some chance in Austin to maybe get antitrust immunity, he and he alone told the divisions to stand down on voluntary rulemaking. And then he blamed it on the Justice Department. And uh, this conversation with the head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department, Macon Del Harim, and I uh, wrote about that, and I said that was a ruse. It just didn't add up, and Adela Reem was on the way out. You were about to have the transition from the Trump to the Biden administration. The NCAA was plastering that justification all over its website and all of its public statements that they had to stop voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness because the antitrust division was telling them to stand down, and that simply wasn't true. In fact, in a fairly recent podcast interview on Karen Weaver's podcast, I've talked a little bit about that. It's a great podcast. But uh, she had Macon Del Harim on, and they talked a little bit about that. And Macon Del Harim said outright and unequivocally that he didn't tell the NCAA to cease its voluntary rulemaking. He did not tell the NCAA to stand down. So either Mark Emmert or Macon Del Harim's not giving us a straight story. But that just speaks to Mark Emmert's anti-leadership. And I did an episode after that uh, March 31st, uh, 2022 presser at the Final Four, and I titled it Mark Emmert, Master Dissembler. And, and that's what he's best at. But you know, when he's dissembling for institutional interests, NCAA, Power Five interests, he can be effective at that. But when he's dissembling to deflect responsibility and accountability, that's just not good. It's not good. I think that will define Mark Emmert's tenure. His refusal to accept responsibility for his leadership and his obligations as a leader. At every turn when something bad happened under his tenure, he would immediately point the finger. And he did that in that March 31st, uh, 2020. 
22 interview. That's just the way he's wired. That is not an effective leadership strategy when you're trying to convince United States senators that uh, they should step in and essentially make the NCAA and the Power Five untouchable and that no external regulator can tell them what to do. And that's precisely what they were asking for. So the, the NCAA is in desperate need of a new messenger here. And I think that's what's driving this decision and the timing of it. So speaking of timing, let me talk a little bit about why I think the, the time is right now for Emmert to leave. And back in those episodes I did in July of 2021, after the NCAA's just a horrible month of June with the Austin decision, the nil debacle, and then the relaxation of, of the transfer rules. In one of those episodes, I said, maybe it's time for the power brokers in big time college sports to convene a private conversation with Emmert and bring him to the table and have that come to Jesus meeting. And I analogize that to Richard Nixon's last days in the summer of 1974 when his advisors finally came in and sat down and said, look, President Nixon, you you need to just resign here. There's no pathway out for you. And I, I thought that should have happened in July of 2021, but that wasn't really a viable option for the Board of Governors in 20. 21, July of 2021, because just, uh, what, two months earlier, three months earlier, they gave Mark Emmert a contract extension into 2025. And again, you just can't make this stuff up. But it, it reflects, I think, the failure of leadership at the Board of Governors level. And I think also just a, a failure to acknowledge the reality of what was happening in college sports. And so they went into their promise and delay campaign. And now things have gotten so bad, at least in terms of the public perception of the NCAA and, and the NCAA president in its national office, that they really don't have a choice. And I think that the timing, though, makes sense because they said June of 2023, that's the kind of the, the back end range. But he could leave at any time, depending on when they bring somebody new in. And I also think that it's likely that they wouldn't have made this announcement unless they had some sense of who they wanted to bring in and, and had some belief that person would take the job. So we'll see. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But the timing is important because if you pay close attention to the comments that have come out from the in-system propagandists outside of the NCAA national office, like Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer and then Tom McMillan, head of Lead One, they are all pointing to a, a kind of a long-range plan here. And they're talking about the midterms. McMillan has talked about this process really maybe playing out in Congress over the next couple of years. He's speaking in terms of years, which tells me that they're looking beyond the midterm elections as well, because if the Republicans take the Senate and the House, they're, in, they're sitting in a very good position for the NCAA and Power Five to come in and, and get what they wanted in 2020, but just... Uh, failed to close. They didn't close the deal. And remember, back in 2020, the NCAA was leading the charge in the lobbying campaign and the engagement with Congress. And people forget that in May of 2020, the Power Five sent a letter to the leaders of Congress, both chambers, and said, look, we agree with the platform that, that the NCAA has been, been pushing, but we need this thing to move much faster. And they used the phrase, time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. They were really hammering that because I think they saw the, the political 
problems that might occur if there was uh, a, a turnover in the Senate. That seemed unlikely at the time, I think, in May of 2020. But I think the, the Power Five were getting really impatient with the pace of things in Congress, and they just wanted to run something through and get it done while you have uh, friendly people in the decision-making chairs in the United States Senate, and, and it didn't happen. So I, I think you have the, the Power Five who are now in the driver's seat. They, they're looking at this congressional strategy, I think, a little bit differently. They have to get some space between Emmert's failed campaign and their re-engagement with Congress and perhaps with a new face on that. But they're talking about looking at the possibility of just ramming something through a Republican-controlled Congress. But if they do that, they're going to need a Republican president to sign the bill. Because if they ram this thing through on a purely partisan basis, and they don't have a critical mass of Democrat senators, and in particular, female Democrat senators, that's where the rubber's going to meet the road here, because of the way that the NCAA and Power Five have propagandized the gender equity issues. But if they don't have that critical mass, then you know they're going to need a Republican president to, to sign the bill. I think if they take control, if the Republicans take control of the Senate and the House and the midterm elections here, and then the NCAA and Power Five can get that critical mass, I think President Biden might sign that bill. So there are a lot of things to play out here, but I think they're looking at the long game here politically. And as I've discussed before, and I think this is just so, so important, the political calculations going forward may not necessarily run purely through partisan politics. They may run more through power five interests versus non-power five interests. And that's why I think you see more direct lobbying from uh, power five university presidents and from conference commissioners and from athletics directors and perhaps influential members of boards of trustees and governing boards and boards of regents at the power five. So you have a, a, a different approach here. And I think that is a, a product of the thinking that was behind that May 23rd, 2020 letter from the Power Five to Congress that we have our unique interests here and we need to get this thing done. We need to just kill the snake here and and, and move on and protect the business model. And, and that may be a palatable argument even to moderate Democrats, particularly female moderate Democrats in the Senate. If it can be dressed up in uh, gender equity issues and, and then the interests of the Olympic sport athletes and the NCAA has been propagandizing the ever-living hell out of the NCAA feeder system in Olympic development. And that's a powerful narrative. So they have their issues and, and I think they have their new strategy. But what they really need is a new face, a new leader. And the NCAA isn't going to go away overnight, and the NCAA is still technically in charge, and the Power Five are still operating under the NCAA umbrella. So the, the face of the NCAA is very important, at least for political purposes. So on this timing, I think what you're going to see as the transformation committees starting to put some flesh on the bones of their claims of transformative change in college sports at the Division One level, you're going to see either some meaningful change that could be the impetus for re-engagement with Congress, or you're going to see some bold promise and delay tactics that could be more effectively repackaged with a new face of the NCAA. But I believe that Mark Emmert's tenure is going to roll along that time frame. So the Transformation Committee set a deadline of August 1st of 2022 to come up with its recommendations. And they've been very coy about what exactly they're doing here. 
and and what they're going to recommend. And then, of course, on the back side of that, let's, we're assuming that the transformation committee is going to stick with that August deadline. And I think that they need to because they need to show that they're taking this transformative change thing seriously, that they are capable of making change that is outside of the worn out talking points that they've been relying on for decades. And then they can use that momentum heading into the midterms and start to rally some support for, for, for that re-engagement with Congress. So I think what you might see is Emmert sticking around until this summer and then at or about the time that this transformation committee is going to start talking in a specific way about, about what it wants in terms of change at the Division One level, then you're going to see a, a new face of the NCAA. And I, I do think that there's a chance that that kind of approach with that kind of timing could have an impact on the way that people perceive the NCAA and perceive the regulatory model in college sports, the voluntary regulatory model in college sports. And that would be a smart strategy. That would be, a, I think, a, an intelligent pathway forward. And then we're going to have to pay real close attention to the details of what comes out from this transformation committee. And then what the rhetoric is, the political rhetoric is leading into the midterms and then after the midterms, particularly if the Republicans take, take both the Senate and the House. And I, I guess I need to have a big asterisk next to all this because my crystal ball's kind of cloudy these days and things happen so fast. Who the hell knows? And in that last episode, I was talking about the NCAA Power Five's need to have as many new arguments in its arsenal as possible for re-engagement with Congress. I don't think going back and making all the same arguments they made in the nil campaign is going to be effective because the nil market exists and college sports hasn't come to a fatal collapse. They're looking for new arguments. And I think that does tie into this California bill, as I discussed in the last episode. So if you have that bill passing the Senate and then waiting for a signature from Governor Newsom, you've got a whole new set of arguments that the NCAA and Power Five can use to re-engage Congress with this transformation committee's work, with a new face of the NCAA, and with some momentum into the backside of the midterm. So I, I think that could create a, a fundamentally different set of circumstances at the political level in, in Congress. So we'll see what happens there. But a lot of people have been telling me that I'm silly to be focusing on the congressional pathway for the NCAA and Power Five to restore themselves to an unchallengeable Iron Throne status and, and with the ability to run college sports without any interference from external regulators. I have simply not bought into that narrative because I think that underestimates the power of the influences that are behind this congressional campaign. These are some of the most powerful influences in the history of the United States of America, and they have combined their power, the Power Five, the NCAA, the institutions that make up the Power Five, some of the most powerful institutions of higher education, not just in the, in the United States, but in the world. And then you have this massive sports industrial complex that has enormous influence in shaping narratives in very sophisticated and subtle ways that has been promoting the uh, political uh, aims of the Power Five and to a lesser extent of the NCAA. And then you have these decades-long relationships that the NCAA and Power Five have been forming in their congressional lobbying. And th they are so far ahead of the game at the political level, I think, compared to the athletes' rights movement, that I think it's just easy 
in all of the feel-good stories about athletes' rights and, and how much things have changed, to lose sight of the fact of that power base. And one of the things that, that I have said to people who are telling me that I'm, I'm barking up the wrong tree with this congressional intervention issue is that when you look at the people, the senators particularly, who are promoting athletes' rights legislation, and they're well-respected, they're all very well-respected, but on, on this issue, on big-time college sports, they're not power players because they don't have big-time Power 5 uh, football products in their state. So you have Chris Murphy from Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, both, both great senators and very well respected. But on college sports issues, and they've been vocal advocates for the athletes, there's not a Power 5 product in Connecticut. You have Cory Booker, a former football player at Stanford. He's in New Jersey. Uh, Rutgers is the only Power 5 product there, and it's probably among the weakest Power 5 products or the products that, that seem to fit less well with the Power 5. It's not a power player. Rutgers is not a power player in the Power Five. And you have Bernie Sanders. He's involved with that Murphy Sanders bill. He is from Vermont, for crying out loud. Vermont has very little skin in the game in big time college sports. And then you have Gillibrand. I can't remember where she's from. I think New York, maybe. And outside of Syracuse, which is not a power player in, in, in big time college sports because they have a pretty weak football program. But uh, New York's not a power player. And then you have Brian Schatz out of Hawaii. Hawaii doesn't have a power five school. The University of Hawaii, I think, is in the Mountain West. They're in the group of five. So w when you look at this from a purely political standpoint, and this is what I think the NCAA's lawyers and lobbyists are telling them, you have a pretty decent pathway when it runs through power five interests. And we're just beginning to see the potential influence of those interests in, in the power five's re-engagement with Congress. So I just think that it's silly to assume that the Power Five are simply not going to be able to get what they want from Congress. I think we could be looking at a completely new world post midterms. And I think you're going to see these interests running through senators that have big Power Five institutions in them. And when you start counting the votes along those terms, things look pretty good for the NCAA and the Power Five. So let me talk a little bit about what what I think the next NCAA president is going to look like. What are, what are the qualities that you want in a new NCAA president right now? And that's going to run through what the Power Five want. And the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors, Jack DeJoya, who is the Georgetown University president, he's the one who is a point person because the Board of Governors is solely responsible for hiring and firing the NCAA president and setting the terms of his contract and, and reviewing his performance. But, you know, DeJoya is a guy who just a year ago was out on the publicity trail making the case to keep Emmert and saying he was doing everything that he was being asked to do and he was doing a great job and that the Board of Governors fully supported Mark Emmert. And that certainly was reflected in that contract extension vote, which was unanimous just a year ago. And back when I did an episode on that meeting, I think that was episode 24 on Current Events Chaos, I noted that there was a full attendance. So there were no abstentions. There were no absentees. So that was a unanimous, full Board of Governors decision. And uh, in that NCAA press release announcing Emmert's retirement, resignation, I should say, not retirement. That's another important distinction. He didn't say he was retiring. He said he was resigning. 
But DeJoya just made some pro forma comments. They were written comments. I don't think that Emmert or DeJoya have been in a live interview since that announcement was made. But DeJoya was very muted. And I alluded to that earlier in, in the episode. There wasn't a bunch of feel-good, puffy stuff. It was just Emmert's going to resign and here's the, the last day that he could possibly be employed and we're going to move on to the next thing. And I, what I think that really says is that Jack DeJoya didn't make this decision. I don't even know if the Board of Governors, how they actually feel as a body about this resignation and, and the pressure that was brought to bear to make it happen. I think this is a Power 5 decision. I think this is a Greg Sankey decision. I think this is a transformation committee decision. And they're driving the train now. And they uh, see Emmert as a liability in their their aims going forward, both in terms of remaking Division 1 through the new authorities of the new Constitution, but more importantly, in their congressional campaign. And Emmert simply can't be part of that. So what's the next NCAA president going to look like? Well, I, I don't have a, a name in mind. I have some names that are floating around, but I'm not going to throw them out there because that's just a wild speculation. But if you look at what the NCAA needs right now, what the Power Five needs really in an NCAA president, I think that they would like to see a female president. I think that's the first important qualification. And the reason for that is that when you look at the congressional campaign, I think you really have to look at the Senate Commerce Committee because that is where any sports-related legislation will originate. And if the NCAA is going to get buy-in, the Power Five is going to get buy-in to protective federal legislation, it's got to run through commerce. And I, I think if you're really looking at a granular level at the political strategy, you're going to be targeting the female senators on that Commerce Committee. And more importantly, the Democrat female senators on that committee because they are gold. If you can get a just a handful of female Democrat senators to buy into your legislative package, then that's a win, I think. E even if the Republicans take control of Congress, but we're not waiting until the presidential election and the possibility of a Republican president as well. I think if you get just a small number of female Democrats on the Commerce Committee saying yes, I think Biden might sign that bill. So that is really, I think, the targeted political campaign right now. And so the way I think about it is who is going to be the most effective sitting down in a meeting with Maria Cantwell or Amy Klobuchar or, or any of the other Democrat female senators who are on that Commerce Committee? And what does that conversation look like? I'm thinking it's going to look a heck of a lot different than Mark Emmert's conversation with Marsha Blackburn. She's a Republican, but, you know, she's a woman on that committee, and I think she holds some sway. So I think when you look at it that way and you think about that hypothetical conversation, who do you want sitting there? And you want somebody who is a woman. I think a, a woman can deliver that message in a much more effective way than an overcompensated, arrogant white man. <laughs> and then you also want somebody who understands the inside the beltway game. And I, I don't know who that would be. And, and then the other thing is, is race important? I think it's less important than gender right now. But then the other thing that you, you have to think about is, you know, do you want a university president to sit in the captain's chair at the NCAA. That's been the model for the last 20 years. And, and I believe that's been a big part of the problem and that culture of omerta that exists among university presidents. And at least on paper, you have uh, university presidents making these decisions on the board of governors. So do you want a university president model 
Or do you want to move outside of that and try to go with stature? I thought it was interesting with this constitutional makeover. The NCAA didn't go with the logical people you would think that might chair that committee. And that would have been Jack DeJoya, who's head of the Board of Governors, or Mark Emmert, who's NCAA president. They went with Bob Gates. And you know, he meets a lot of check marks, very, very impressive resume, including a former college president at, at Texas A&M. But they went for stature there because they knew that this was really a, a battle of perception and trying to restore credibility as well as relevance. And I think that's the way that they're going to be thinking about this new NCAA president. So who that person is, it, you know, remains to be seen and whether they're going to try to move away from this university president model for the NCAA president. But I, th I think the most important thing here is that it's a, a woman. I'd be very surprised if we see uh, kind of that same mold, the, the white man with perfectly coiffed hair and a bunch of president speak and and a bunch of dissembling. And then an another criteria I think that is important, and this may shift my thinking to the non-president side, but I think it would be helpful if you had somebody who didn't have any direct skin in the game. You don't have somebody who is either conflicted, and I think all these Power Five presidents are conflicted because they are living in this, this hypocrisy of the amateur professional dilemma, and they're benefiting from this ridiculous construction of the business model and the financial framework of big-time college sports. And you don't want somebody coming directly out of the athletics director's mold because they've been feasting off the, the gravy train and the revenue generated by uh, big-time football and big-time men's basketball. In a Sportico article last month, a faculty athletics representative from Syracuse, a guy named Rick Burton, wrote an op-ed, and he was making the argument that the NCAA needs a church hill figure. He didn't come out and say that presidential leadership had been a failure. He didn't come out and say that Mark Emmert should be fired. Uh, he was very coy about that, and he he fell back on a lot of traditional talking points. But he threw out a couple of examples, and it was interesting that they were women. So he used Val Ackerman, who is the athletics director, I'm sorry, not the athletics director, the conference commissioner of the Big East Conference, and she's well-respected, and she's been influential in the regulation of college sports and helping to form policy, and she's been outspoken on Title IX issues and all those things. But she is drinking from the trough with the commissioner of the Big East Conference. And she's making a seven-figure salary off the labors, largely of Big East basketball players. And I think that if they go that route, they're just going to open themselves up to, to more criticism, I think. Then the other person he threw out was Condoleezza Rice, and boy, does she meet a lot of check marks. And I didn't criticize that potential selection on its merits, but only on the fact that Condoleezza Rice came in as head of the Commission on College Basketball, and that commission issued some recommendations, and most of them have been undone and unwound by in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. So why would she come back and be the leader of an organization that has even less power than it did when she did her work in 2018 and try to steer this uh, ship away from the rocks and, and try to trade down on her credibility in Congress? I, I don't know. I think that's the type of person that would be 
ideal because of her her chops and her credibility and her ability to have that discussion with those uh, female senators on in the Commerce Committee. And, and imagine Condoleezza Rice and Maria Cantwell having that conversation. I, I think that could be a very fruitful, productive conversation. And But would she take the job? On, on the backside of her experience with the Commission on College Basketball, would she take the job? And one of the things I, I really admired about the way she handled that role is that even though she was in system and the NCAA formed that committee and it was comprised of people who bought in, I think, at the basic values level to the NCAA's view of the of the world. But she made some comments, I think some pretty insightful comments that were subtle, but I think important outside of the formal report when the report was released that suggested that she sort of understood the dysfunction in the governance model and, and the collision between the, the values they claim to hold and the actual business model. But the other thing to think about, and this is a practical consideration with Dr. Rice, and that is that she's business partners with Bob Gates. So she and Gates have a consulting firm and they've been in business together for a number of years now. And you have to believe that she and Gates have been communicating very closely about what's been going on at the NCAA because Gates was the face of this constitutional makeover. And he's been serving as one of its, quote unquote, independent board members, the five independent board members, which were the product of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball that Dr. Rice led. And the NCAA adopted that change. And uh, so I, I think she probably has had a second row seat to what's been going on behind the scenes at the NCAA. And I think if she is asked to consider the job, she would be able to do that, I think, with a, a lot of information. And who knows? Who knows what, what someone like her might be thinking? And, and I just throw those names out because they were raised in this article and I've talked about it just a little bit. But th that's the type of person I think that the NCAA needs right now. And what that short list might look like, who knows? But I think we're going to know sooner rather than later. Because, I, I, again, I, I think it's unlikely that this announcement is made unless the NCAA and, more importantly, the Power Five and Greg Sankey and all the movers and shakers on this transformation committee have an idea of who they want. And they have their short list. And I'm guessing they may have worked out a little bit and have some sense of who would be inclined to say yes. So. But we'll see what happens as this plot thickens. This is just insane what has happened in the last two years. But I'll be talking more about that. And then I'm going to come back, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, to this California bill. And I'll talk a little bit about that bill at the values level. So with that, I'm going to close this episode out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.